0: I don't know if you're like me, but when I find a song that I like, I will listen to it over and over and over again. Anybody else like that? Is that how you—right, okay. So that's how I am, and that song uh, has been on repeat for me for about the past month. I love it. And uh, I have been talking about it with Sarah uh, off and on through there because I really do feel like the message of that song fits very well, uh, especially with this, this kind of new series that we're going to be starting uh, next week in particular, really kind of today and next week in the sense that um, the message that it communicates. Just as a quick kind of overview of that uh, and things I want you thinking about, we've obviously started this year with this emphasis on courage and, and leaving, living courageously and what that looks like. And we base that on Joshua 1.9 that talks about uh, be strong and courageous, do not be discouraged, do not be afraid, for the Lord God goes with you wherever you go. and and building a whole framework and an understanding of our lives of how do we live that out? How do we live courageously? And so we started our year uh, building into that theme by talking about prayer, that really prayer is where it begins. Our relationship with the Lord and being able to pray courageously is going to translate to courageous living. And so we finished up that series on the greater work and what it means to pray last Sunday with that prayer service. And so today is a little bit of a transitional Sunday as we prepare for the next one, but it's so uh, hopefully kind of set the tone for you through this previous series that that's going to be kind of our approach throughout the year. We're going to hit on different subjects that help us understand how do I live courageously. So we focused on prayer. We're going to take a look at things like truth, identity, purity, mission. Uh, We're going to be going back to Romans, all these different subjects that help us understand how do I live that way. And today, uh, as we kind of transition, we're going to start focusing our attention on God's courageous plan. Right? And the idea is that because we know his plan, that is going to translate into a courageous life. Right? Just as the song communicates, we know how this story ends. We know that we're going to be with him again. And so though we face battles, though we face all these different challenges, opportunities, situations throughout our lives, we can have courage, we can have confidence because we know that we're fighting a battle that the Lord's already won. Right, like we have the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. When we truly understand his plan, when we truly understand all those different things that we can declare as victory, it's going to translate into courageous living. And so I love the message of that song, and I think it really does set the tone for us as we head into this next series. And, and that's the question I would present to you this morning for you to be thinking through is what battles are you facing Right? What challenges are currently in your life, what, what situations, what circumstances, whatever they may be, come before the Lord in that spirit of surrender and trust and knowing that the battle's already won. Right? The victory belongs to Jesus Christ, amen? What a beautiful thing to celebrate. Let's pray, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We are so grateful for the opportunity to declare, um, God, just your victory in Jesus and the opportunity for us to come before you burdened and weary and, and overwhelmed at times, disoriented at times, whatever the emotions may be, God, that we can come in here, we can lay them at your feet and celebrate with one another, encourage one another as brothers and sisters in the faith, uh, reminding each other that the victory belongs to you, uh, that we do know how this story ends, though we don't exactly know and, and nor can we fully comprehend um, how it's going to transpire and, and how long and our, our path forward, God, we can still trust and see that your hand guides us and we can follow you. Uh, what a gift that is. And so now, God, we, we turn to the scriptures. And uh, we, we once again anticipate your spirit to guide us and lead us into truth. That we can be changed and transformed. Thank you for being here with us, God. Uh, send us the fullness of your presence as we seek to honor you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Uh, it was winter retreat this weekend. And uh, it was great. Uh, Jennifer and I, we actually served as a host home for the junior high boys. Uh, So, the irony, yeah, the irony of that means that I'm as likely to fall asleep in the message today as you are, okay? Uh, So I I appreciate your grace. I'm I'm rarely offended when you fall asleep in the sermon, so if I do, just go ahead and uh, extend me that grace this morning, it was a great weekend. Uh, Loved getting a chance to see those boys connect. Uh, Special word of thanks to Jason, uh, Simon, and his incredible team, yeah. Uh, Jason is a great, fearless leader, but he would be the first one to tell you he does it uh, alongside some incredible leaders and volunteers. Thank you for the other uh, people that poured into the students, the small group leaders, thank you for so many parents and others that helped rally together food and serve as transport all over the different places, the people that served at the conferences. It was a great weekend. And so thank you all for that. We really did enjoy it and look forward to seeing the fruit of that over the next several weeks, months, and as we continue just to invest in them. I, ho- I hope it shows you youth, uh, we love you, uh, and you matter, and this church cares about you, and this is a place where you're always gonna have uh, people to come alongside you and love on you, and I hope it says to the rest of the church, man, that's, that's just what we're about, and we'll continue to, to make that a priority and a focus. Uh, that being said, let me get us started. Uh, it was 2009, January of 2009, when I accepted a position at First Baptist Arlington, to be the director of global ministries, okay? And so that was my first ministry job at a seminary, and so I started in January, okay? And by May, I was leading my first international mission trip, okay? Now, uh, I had been on trips before, I had gone on mission trips before up to that point, but I'd never led one. And so it was a pretty, I'll just be honest, it was a pretty overwhelming responsibility four months into a new job. Uh, I, I, I had a lot of different emotions About this first trip, um, I was gonna be going to a country I had never been to before, working with people that I was still really kind of getting to know, uh, still kind of forging relationships, doing a work that I didn't fully comprehend and understand yet. It was pretty overwhelming. And I will tell you that I had a lot of mixtures of emotions. There were times where I was like, why are we doing this? Is this really necessary? There were times where I was nervous, times where I was excited, there were times where I was confused. And in the closer it got to the trip, I kind of find myself, uh, found myself being even more apprehensive, even more hesitant, and, and almost kind of like frustrated and angry because it really felt like I was just being thrown into the deep end and folks were gonna kind of watch and, and look back and be like, okay, will he sink or swim? I, I would have loved to have had somebody else to kind of come alongside me that I could have learned from, kind of mentored me, but I was just thrown out there and I was like, okay, here we go. It's 27 years old gonna see if I can make this work, responsible for these other people. Let's see how this goes. Um, And so it ended up being a great trip, right? Obviously the Lord was faithful and it made some great relationships, a foundation for some really strong relationships there, some great memories. But I was definitely apprehensive going into it. And to perhaps encapsulate that, emotion. Uh, the best way to give you a story for that is to talk about how we arrived at the airport that day. Um, if you've ever traveled internationally, you know that going through customs is really no easy process, no matter where you are in the world. It can be complicated. That is especially true when you're going to a developing country. Uh, Sierra Leone at the time, and I would imagine it's still close to about the same, it was the most impoverished. It was the lowest or highest level of poverty in the, in the world, poorest country in the world. And, and so uh, you don't have the luxury of arriving in this country and stepping off into this really sophisticated, neatly designed, highly technological airport that's going to guide you through all these different lanes and customs with numerous translations. Like you land, and then you're climbing down the ladder, and you are walking across the runway, and you're walking into some torn, kind of broken down building that is just filled with people, and it's filled with people that speak a language that you don't understand, uh, that you don't speak, and you've got to figure out how to navigate it. One of the first things that you do is you've got to get all your bags. When you're taking a big trip like this, you have bags and bags and bags, not just the ones that you brought for your trip, but the ones that you brought for the ministry, and there are all these local Sierra Leoneans that are in the airport just kind of consuming you, bombarding you so that they can help you with their bags, knowing that they're going to get a tip, and that this is kind of the way that they generate income. And so you're getting just bombarded by all these people. You gotta choose somebody, negotiate with them in a language that you don't really speak, pay them in a currency that you don't really understand, and hope that it all works out with your luggage. And so we get through that first part. Uh, we, we walk through customs in some sort of capacity, and I know the next step is we gotta get the other people on the team some currency exchange, so we go to the currency window, and we're working through the currency exchange, and, and I had no idea what to do next. Right, like, I had no clue, because it's such an overwhelming situation, uh, a lot of times when you take these trips, the local missionaries are going to meet you at the airport to help you navigate it, uh, but we didn't have that benefit. We didn't have that benefit for a couple of reasons. One is is that when you arrive in Sierra Leone, uh, you arrive late at night, all right, so it was, it was at night, uh, it was dark, again, imagine, impoverished country, not a lot of electricity, I mean, it is dark outside. And, and so arriving late at night was one factor, but the second was that we land on an island. And when you land on an island, uh, you have to take either a ferry or a water taxi across this body of water to get to the mainland. Well, that's, that's a lot of effort, that's a lot of money. And so the local missionaries were like, we're not doing that. Like it's late, it's a fer- the ferry's closed, water taxis. And the, the local missionary said, we've been wanting to try this water taxi system out, we're gonna let you guys try it, see how it goes. I was like, thank you, happy to be the experiment for you. And so that was all I had. Somebody is gonna be there to pick you up. I didn't have a name, I didn't have an organization, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. So we're at the currency window, I'm looking around, I have no clue, i like, well, I'm gonna call Ron, I call the local missionary, the phone doesn't work, I can't get through, so that just adds to it. So I'm like, what do I do? Now, I was there on behalf of First Baptist Arlington, but one of the other missions organizations that we represented was an organization called Global Connection partnership network, okay, and we would refer to it as G-C-P-N by, you know, just kind of paraphrase, and so I'm surveying the crowd, and I look, and all of a sudden, I see one guy with like literally a white piece of paper and green marker, and he's holding up, and it says G-C-T-N, and I was like, close enough, we're going with that guy, and so we get all of our gear, and I don't, don't even really know how to talk to him, and he takes us to some van. We get on this van and they just drive us away out of the airport. It's dark outside. They turn down behind some sort of broken down restaurant that wasn't in service anymore and they take us onto the shores. They tell us to get out of the van and I'm thinking to myself, this is it. This is how it ends. Like this is the end of my life. I have no idea who these people are. They're taking us to some backwoods here. Good luck, tell my wife I love her. And and so we're sitting there and I, I have legitimate fear, not really knowing how this is gonna work, but I can kind of start to see, okay, this is, this is a safe situation. But then all of a sudden they take all of our bags and they put it on one boat, one little small kind of little motorboat. there. They put all of our bags on a boat and the guy just leaves. And as he leaves, I'm like, well, there goes our luggage, right, so we're gonna have to make it for the next two weeks without any luggage. Then they get us on the boat. And again, we're traveling across this body of water in the dark, no lights, hoping that we're gonna get safely to shore. And so there were all these emotions, all this apprehension, as you could anticipate. We make it to shore. There's our luggage. There's the local missionary welcoming us with open arms. How was the water taxi? I was like, it was great. Thank you so much. You know? and, and so we made it, and it was all fine. But it was filled with all these different emotions along the way. And it was really hard for somebody doing this for the first time. The reason I tell you that story is this. Sometimes it's really hard to know who to trust. Right, it's really hard to know where to place your faith. Like in that scenario, I had all these different emotions, all these different circumstances and variables, So I was like, who do I trust here in this moment? How do I make a decision about how to move forward? And when you don't have a clear understanding of the plan, or you're confused by the plan, or you've never done it before, it can be that much more difficult to discern, where do I place my faith? And so that little story encapsulates what it's like to live life, doesn't it? Right, like we go through life and we're gonna have all these different emotions, all these different situations and circumstances it can be overwhelming, they can be fearful, they can be exciting, they can be confusing, and we are gonna to have to make the decision, who do I trust? Where do I put my faith? And the more that we know the plan and our role within it, the easier it is for us to trust. And that's the essence of today's message, right? To remind one another that God is absolutely worthy of our trust. There is no one like our God. Our faith can be placed in him. And so to review that and to talk through that, we're gonna be back in Romans. Aren't you excited? It's been a while. Grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter one. I mentioned earlier that this is a bit of a transitional message today. Here's the idea. Uh, We're gonna be looking at uh, Romans nine through I don't know that we'll get through 11 in this first part, but we're going to be back in Romans chapter 9, and it's a chapter that really helps us kind of dive into some of the intricacies of God's plan. Uh, but it's, it's a more complicated part of the letter. In fact, normally when I read through Romans, I think about all the different parts I like about it. I'm like, yeah, but I really don't know about what to do with chapters 9 through 11. And so it's, it's an interesting section of the letter. Uh, and so rather than just launch back into it, My thought was that after we finish this prayer series, we need to take a day and just remind ourselves in terms of what has happened in the first eight chapters, just so we have that as context, but then also kind of rediscover some of the questions that have gone unanswered that set up chapters 9, 10, and 11, okay? And so that's what we're doing today. We're reviewing chapter 8. We're going to go back to the thesis statement in chapter 1 that's driving the whole letter, to also use that as a guide to kind of remind ourselves not just some of the themes that Paul has covered in the first eight chapters, but what are some of the questions that have been left unanswered that he's going to turn to in chapter nine, okay? Uh, So that's our approach today. So when you think about Romans one through eight, I'm just going to do a quick overview. If you want to kind of flip along with, with me, you can, but we're going to ultimately come back to one verse 16 and 17. But here's the deal. You get to Romans chapter one, this first 16, 17 verses is really Uh, Kind of that introduction, the common greeting that Paul extends to any recipient that he's writing a letter to, uh, and you have the kind of warm exchange, a little reminder of who he is, and when you get to the end of that opening section, verses 16 and 17, is where you find that thesis statement, that God's righteousness has been revealed. Okay, we're going to come back to that here in just a moment. But that's the theme. God, God has revealed his righteousness, and it is a righteousness that is by faith right? And so he establishes that, and then everything after that is an argument to explain it. And so the way he begins that argument is to tell us that not only has God's righteousness been revealed, so is his wrath. His wrath is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of mankind, that you find in verses 18 through 32, the rest of chapter 1. And what you find in that section is a critical diagnosis of the human heart, Right, like it it captures the human dilemma that every single one of us struggles with, which is what? That we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Right? We we no longer worship the creator, we worship created things. He gets at to the heart of idolatry that every human heart, every temptation that leads you into sin is to refuse to acknowledge God as God and to go your own way. To believe something else, to define good and evil for yourself, right? We make that exchange. If you're not worshiping the creator, you are worshiping something that was created. Could be an idea, could be a statue, could be a philosophy, could be yourself, whatever it is, but you're worshiping something that has been created. And so he, he begins to describe the symptoms of that heart condition, right? It leads to greed, envy, malice, strife, all these different manifestations of sin, that's how you know you've made this great exchange. And so he makes this diagnosis, and it's very um, sobering, it's chilling, it's, it's convicting. And you can tell that part of what he's doing at the early parts of this letter is he's speaking to both a Jewish and Gentile audience. And so the end of chapter one kind of has the spirit of what the Gentiles would t- typically be labeled as, right? The, these non-God fearers. And so as he finishes chapter one, he gets to chapter two, and it's like he turns to the Jews and says, hey, before you point your fingers at these folks that we've been talking about, you don't get to judge them either, right? Because whether you sin apart from the law, like the Gentiles, or under the law, like the Jews, you're all going to be judged. And just because you've been given the law, what have you found? You, yourselves, you Jews, you're a lawbreaker, just like them, Which leads to chapter 3 in his very powerful declaration, there is no one righteous, not one. Not Jew, not Gentile, no one is righteous. And so for him to reveal that this is an issue that comes by faith, the first, first thing he has to establish is that you cannot achieve this righteousness on your own, whether you are Jew or Gentile. And so he establishes that in chapter 3, and then he brings in the hope, right, that a a new righteousness has been revealed to which the law and the prophets testify that comes through Jesus. And it is a righteousness that is not by works in the law, but by faith. And so now he's made the argument, no one's righteous. It's a righteousness that comes by faith. And so now he needs to explain this has always been the case. Chapter 4, he goes back to Abraham. Right? Abraham's the prime example. Abraham's the father of the covenant. He's the father of the promises. He's the father of all these different things. And yet it was credited to him as righteousness because he believed God. Not because of the works, not because of the things he did, but because of what he believed, because of his faith. Chapter 4 establishes Abraham as that example. Chapter 5, he starts to begin to talk about the results of that sort of faith that because we have that faith, we can be justified in God's eyes. We can have peace with God. And because that's such a remarkable thing to consider, he explains how it's possible. And he draws in a comparison between Christ and Adam. Right, and he, essentially the summarization that I always am drawn to in chapter five is that just as condemnation came into the world through one man, by the, by the act, sinful disobedience of one man, referring to Adam, so now justification, salvation has come to the world through the righteous, obedient act of one man, meaning Jesus, right? And you see this kind of, push and pull between the two and that that's how God has made it right. So now he gets to chapter six and he starts answering additional questions that you naturally begin to ask when you begin to hear that righteousness comes by faith. It comes by grace. It's not by works. Does that mean I just can do whatever I want? Can I just continue to sin so that his grace may increase? By no means, right? God's, God's grace is not a license to sin, right? You cannot uh, presume upon that grace, that essentially what has happened is that you have joined with Christ, right? You have died to sin so that you can be made alive in Christ. You have joined with him in a death like his, which is the imagery of baptism, so that you can join with him in a resurrection like his. And so we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We are made alive in Christ. Is chapter 6 which anticipates another question. Well, that might be true, but man, it sure doesn't feel like that sometimes. So chapter seven is all about, but I get it. Paul's saying, I get it, you're you're still in the flesh. Though you've been able to die to sin through Christ and made alive in Christ, you're still in the flesh. And so the things that you don't want to do, you're gonna find yourself doing. The things that you wish you would do, you you won't be able to do because you're still struggling with this body of flesh. There's this war within you. Who's going to save you from this body of flesh? Thanks be to Jesus Christ who brings us that victory. Which then leads to chapter 8. Though you are in the flesh, God has given you life by the Spirit. And that's where we spent all of Advent in chapter eight was to see what it looks like to live by the Spirit of God, that we're obligated to the Spirit, that the Spirit makes us heirs, that, that it reminds us that no matter what we may face while we live in this flesh, anything that we come up against pales in comparison to the glory that's gonna be revealed in us. Right? That the Spirit intercedes on our behalf to remind us of who we are, that we are called. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Therefore, we are more than conquerors. We should be courageous, confident people, because nothing will separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. That's what we've covered so far, church. And praise God for what we've seen and heard so far in the first part of this letter. It shows us God has a plan. It reminds us of our role within it. It's something to be celebrated. But in addition to all of that, There are these questions underneath it that have been lagging there that that Paul now needs to turn to. And so for us to kind of see kind of that mixture of those themes, this idea of God having a plan, but also the questions underneath it, we're gonna go back and look at Romans 1, verses 16 through 17. Let's read it together. This is the thesis. This is the whole argument for the whole letter. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. All right, you read this, these two verses, right, this opening statement, and so many things probably leap off the page at you if you're like me. I mean, there's so much that's captivating, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God, salvation to all who believe, right? It's a righteousness that is by faith. There's so many things that you can grab a hold of that, that kind of point to this, this arc that we just covered in the first eight chapters. And if you're like me, there's, there's a little phrase that you probably skip over, right? But it, it also sets a really important tone, right? What does he say there? It uh, is salvation, uh, bring salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. What does that mean? Right, a lot of times we read that and we're like, oh, I, don't, I don't know, but it's good so I'm just gonna keep celebrating that we all get to live by faith and their salvation. But there is an immediate reference to this tension between Jew and Gentile that is uh, accentuated in the first three chapters in particular. Let me me point out a few others. You get to Romans chapter two. You can flip with me if you want. We don't have it on the screen. Uh, But at the end of chapter two, starting in verse 28, it says, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God." Now listen, if you're a Jew, and you hear that, that is earth-shattering language. What do you mean I'm not a Jew outwardly, it's only inward. What do you mean it's by the spirit and not by the written code? What in the world are you talking about, Paul? Right, he's accentuating this tension at the beginning of chapter three. He can, he can feel it in his audience, right? So you're asking yourself, what advantage is it there then to be a Jew? Well, there is much in every way, right? He is constantly addressing this tension between Jew and Gentile in the first few chapters. Now, he gets to chapter four and the covenant of circumcision kind of takes the primary uh, place in his argument as he begins to make that comparison with Abraham. And then you get to chapters five through eight and it really just kind of fades away. Right? There, there really isn't much of attention about Jew and Gentile. You see a lot of language about the law, but everything that he's just talked about has kind of disappeared for a little bit as he's focused on these personal implications. So there's, there's all these questions that he has created for his audience, especially the Jews who are reading this, that they're sitting there going, what does all that mean? I mean, think about essentially what, what Paul has argued for in these first eight chapters. Essentially what he is saying is that the Jews, the chosen people, who have sat under this divine like, tutelage for the last thousands of years, who have had this chosen role, been the recipients of the promises and the law and the patriarchs, that essentially they missed the Messiah. Not only did they miss him, they killed him. And and that has drastically changed our understanding of God's plan and their identity. It is a significant statement. So if you're a Jew and you're reading this, think of the emotions and the subsequent questions, right? On one hand, some of them are probably um, in denial. No way we missed it. Who are you to say, there's no way, right? Jesus wasn't the Messiah, right? That was obviously, a response whenever Paul would go and make this argument in the synagogues. Maybe some of them would just be angry. Like, how dare you accuse us of missing the Messiah? How dare you challenge our heritage that we have been building our lives upon for thousands of years, right? And that's that resistance, that persecution. But even if you embraced it, can't you hear the confusion? What does this mean then? Like, why did God do it this way? Why give us the law? Why give us the patriarchs and the promises just so that we would miss it? What does it mean for us now? Are we cut off? Are we we excluded? You can hear the confusion and the angst. He's brought up very significant questions and has yet to address them. And that's where he goes in chapter nine. He's returning to this unfinished business that is absolutely a dominant part of the first eight chapters. We just don't always pay attention to it. And so that's gonna set the stage for us as we really dive into it starting next week. But here's where I want us to connect with it, okay? Essentially, what's happened here is the Jews have have lost a sense of what God's sovereign plan really was. And as a result, it it has challenged their identity. They're placed within that plan and the reason they arrived at that spot was because they had misplaced their faith, right? So essentially what had happened over time is that the Jews put their faith in the law. They put their faith in righteousness through works. And it had led them to now this very disorienting moment where they found themselves going, well, then who do I how do I make sense of this? What is God's plan and my role within it? And that should resonate with every single one of us, right? Because though we may not have a Judaic heritage, we've all gone through seasons in life where we find ourselves going, all right, God, what are you doing? What does this mean for me? What is your plan? What is my role within it? And a lot of times what leads us to those moments and those questions is the exact same thing that contributed to the Jews arriving at that place. It's a misplaced faith, right? We've taken our faith and we've trusted people or things that were never designed to be the object of our faith. And it's confused us. And that's really kind of how I wanna spend the last part of our time together this morning to help transition to this next part of Romans, right? Is to think about the things in our life that often become the object of our faith but it's a misplaced faith, right? We, we've, we've chosen the wrong uh, thing or person to trust, and how do we arrive at that place? So here's, here's how I wanted to approach the conversation this morning. I think there's, there's like an obvious answer to that where we could look at a lot of examples around the world of people that put their faith in things other than Jesus, right? And, and there's like obvious answers, like other religions and uh, substance and, uh, you know, greed and money, like the obvious worldly examples, okay, that most of us, a lot of times, if we're trying to follow Jesus, would say, well, yeah, you should never put your faith in X. That's not a good idea, okay? I didn't really want to spend my time talking about that because what really resonated with me was the Jews were religious. They were God-fearers. They were the church people, right? And if you think about the things that they misplaced their faith in, it was good stuff. The law is good. The covenant is good. The patriarchs are good. The promises are good. And yet somehow they lost view of it. And it, and it created this confusion. They missed the Messiah. They missed what God was doing. And so that's what I want us to figure out is, is how do we do this? And that's where this, this uh, verse 16 to me just lands so strongly. Paul comes out and says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And therein lies our answer. It's the obvious answer, but it's one that we've got to emphasize this morning. Where do we need to place our faith? We don't need to place it in the law. We don't need to place it in works. We don't need to place it in anything else. We must place it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is it. Our faith, this righteousness that has been revealed, finds its center in Jesus. Right? That is where we are to place our faith. But you and I can all acknowledge that there are times where we find things in our lives that are good and, and gradually or maybe immediately, for all these different reasons, reasons, maybe sometimes it's out of fear, maybe sometimes it's out of trauma, maybe sometimes it's out of disillusionment, but we all of a sudden find our hearts shifting, be it consciously or subconsciously, away from the gospel and we put our faith in other things. And we may not even realize we do it. And so here are a couple that I wanted to share with you to consider this morning. Uh, These are the ones that I would tell you I struggle with in my own life. Uh, These would be the ones that I would say I've observed within our culture, within our church, within Christians. Okay, These are things that I think we can often misplace our faith in. The first one I put before you is family. Family is a good thing, a God-given thing right? Beautifully designed by our creator. But I have said it to you time and time again. I'm going to reiterate it to you this morning. Your spouse, your children, your parents are great gifts. They are terrible saviors. And we can orient our whole lives at times around our family to where we may not actually say that we've put our faith in our family more than God, but that's actually how we live. Think about it for a little bit. For some of us, man, it's all about our spouse and what we expect our spouse to do for us. And there can be so many times where we develop resentment in our marriage, we develop confusion in our marriage because we are expecting our spouse to be a savior they can never be. And now we may not say that to them, but it's how we live, right? we need an object for our frustration of why life isn't as fulfilling as I thought it would be or why this didn't work out or why this has fallen short. And so, well, it's your fault if we had just done this or if you had just made this decision, then maybe, or if our marriage was a little bit better. And all those things are symptoms of us looking to our spouse, expecting them to be something they can't be. Some of us, we're not married. And we've created this culture. The church has contributed to it to say, man, marriage is the ultimate that's where you're gonna find the most perfect fulfillment. It's how God designed you. And we have this whole idea that our faith needs to be in this idea of having a spouse. We think about it with kids. Man, so many kids are an incredible blessing, an incredible gift, they're exhausting as well. Right, I mean, just, just incredible. But listen, we get so wrapped up in the idea of this identity, being a mom, being a dad. That's everything. That's why you're here. That's your sole focus. That's, That's all you really need to commit yourself to. Now listen, being a parent is an incredible gift. It's a good thing. It's an important thing. It is not everything. Having kids does not mean you've missed out on God's sovereign plan. Not having kids, right? I mean, like, there's so much more. Having parents. So many people structure their lives desperate for their parents' approval, doing everything they can, again, consciously or subconsciously, to get that affirmation, that praise, that approval from mom and dad. and It's not there. Right? So, so listen, family can be an incredible gift, something that is worthy of your devotion, your attention, your energy. But every single one of us knows that in a moment... Be it because of trauma or because of mistakes of broken people, it can just crumble in an instant. It is a terrible, terrible Savior. Let me say it this way. God's sovereign plan of salvation is not contingent upon you being married, having children, or having good parents. Now, when Jesus is at the center of your family, it can flourish, it can be beautiful, it can be a blessing. It should never be the object of your faith. And think about another one. Let's think about careers for a little bit and how much time, energy, and devotion we give to what we do rather than who we are. And how, how consuming that can be and the way that we will strive for all the affirmation that a career or some level of status will give us, right, that that's going to be what fulfills us, is finally getting that dream job or those, those opportunities where we get the income that we want so that we can have the house that we want to buy, that we can do the vacations that we want to travel to, all these different things that people will, will look to us with a certain level of respect because the title that we get to attach to our name, the accomplishments, the resume that we get to write out all these different things that we would put our energy to. And listen, it's a good thing. It's good to work hard. It's good to care about that stuff. But just similar to the family, you know as well as I do that in an instant it can all crumble. A career makes a terrible savior. I'll say it again. God's sovereign plan of salvation is not contingent upon your job. That's not it. Now, when Jesus is at the center of what you do, it can be an incredible gift and your career can flourish in incredible ways, but it should never be the object of your faith. Let me give you a couple more. Let's talk about uh, your abilities, right? Um, in the church, we like to call it your giftings. Right, your spiritual gifts, things along those lines. The reality is is that this is a human tendency and we learn it at an early age. I'm, I'm raising children and I see it happen all the time. You begin to learn very early about how to view yourself based on what you think you're good at, right? And you learn it on the playground, you learn it in the classroom, you learn it all over the place, right? Well, I'm, I'm good at sports, so I'm an athlete. I'm good at school, so I, I'm, I'm smart, right? I'm, I'm funny, so I'm this person. Like we, we learn, how to define ourselves based on our abilities, and, and that's a human tendency. And then we get in the church and we do it all over again. Right, we just cover it with Christianese along the way. And so we'll, we'll have all these conversations. Well, what are you good at? And we'll define ourselves by our giftings. Well, I can sing so I should be a worship leader. Well, I'm a communicator, so I should be able to teach and preach. Well, I'm really good at evangelism, so that's what I need to do. I'm really passionate about this. And we will begin to define our whole existence based on our giftings, right? And, And that becomes the object, in many ways, of our faith. And we see ourselves through our giftings. But there's a problem with that, is that a lot of times we accentuate certain gifts within the church that shouldn't be accentuated. And we diminish others and guess how that makes people feel down here and it's all is really kind of silly at the end of the day isn't it because i'll say it again it's not as if god's sovereign plan of salvation is contingent upon your giftings god is not up in heaven going all right jeremiah all on you you better make this sermon series really good because if you don't i don't have a plan b like that is not god And we define ourselves that way over and over again again when jesus is at the center he's going to give you opportunities to let your life flourish based on the way that he has gifted you and it's a beautiful thing when you see it come to fruition but it should never be the object of your faith ever the last one that i would put before us uh is is not specific to the church but we we see it in the church as well and this is just the idea of, of certain, I really didn't, I struggled knowing how to categorize it, but I really just said like other worldviews, meaning causes, right? That, that we have these moments where we kind of fall into this idea that we're, we're the enlightened ones and we can look back on all these mistakes of previous generations and so now we're gonna correct all of society's ills. And so this happens in the arena of politics, nonprofit work, all these different things and we'll get so consumed by really good things, right? A, a, a certain cause that we're, we're all about, And we are going to dedicate our lives to making sure we can rid the world of these injustices that have lived for so long. And it's good stuff. It's noble stuff. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But we will dedicate our lives to these things. Once again, really kind of deluding ourselves subconsciously or unconsciously going, this must be what life is all about. This is where I find fulfillment. This is where I find my identity. And and all of a sudden, that's where we put our faith. And God's sovereign plan of salvation is not contingent upon your ability to advocate for a cause. When you make Jesus the center of it, it can flourish, it can be good, it can be beautiful. It should never be the object of your faith. Those are the ones that resonated with me. How easy it is, hopefully you've seen it, how easy it is for us to misplace our faith. So that's the question for you this morning. Who do you trust? Where have you really put your faith? Right, Paul brings forward time and time again in this letter to the Romans, we are to be unashamed of the gospel. That's the object of your faith. Right, God's plan, we see it from beginning to end. Right, we don't always know the chapters, but we can see what he has done as we've already sung together this morning, church, that his plan was to demonstrate his love for you and me by sending his son, Jesus. And in sending Jesus, we had this revelation of our creator for all of his glory, all of his truth, all of his love and his compassion. And we saw it fully expressed by his willingness to die on the cross, that sacrificial gift for you and me that we can find grace and mercy. And we celebrate that gift. We celebrate that sacrifice. But let us not forget the fullness of this gospel that Jesus went to the cross and he emptied the tomb of its power that the resurrection of Jesus tells you and me that we serve the God of resurrected life, amen? That's what he's done. That's what he's doing. That is his plan. And that's what shapes your identity, is to recognize it's not about just your family, your job, your giftings, your passions, your causes. It's about understanding that everything in your life should point back to the gospel. So when you think about your life, ask yourself this question. When people look at me and see how I live, see how I act, see what I care about, do I reveal the gospel or do I conceal it? Is it clear that this is the object of my faith? This is the object of my passion. This is how we begin to see the righteousness of God. And Paul's about to bring us into a very beautiful, intricate journey of God's sovereign plan what it means for the Jew and for the Gentile. And as we go through this journey, I pray that we can just sit back and marvel and be reminded of who he is, that there is no one like our God and he is worthy of all of our trust. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we confess that so many times we misplace our faith and things that are good, things that are noble, things that are gifts and blessings from you, God, but ultimately, they are never designed to be our savior. Help us to repent of those things, God. Help us to loosen our grip on the things that we hold so dear, if those things are not you. And help us to celebrate again this morning, God, that there is truly no one like you. Help us to live out these words that we've read in Paul's letter to Romans, that we are to be unashamed of this gospel, to see it as the power that you have entrusted to us through Christ our Savior, to see it as the salvation that you have offered to all those who would believe, God, that we would be people of faith for what you've done for us in Christ. We thank you, God. We celebrate you. We surrender all to you in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.